take your Bible, please, and open to Luke's Gospel and find chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat rack in front of you, you'll find that on page 859. Page 859. And we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like to reinforce what Josh was just communicating a few minutes ago about the priority of our Wednesday night prayer gathering uh, Middle-of-the-week gatherings are rarely convenient, but they're always really important. And I want to even encourage you to connect the dots between uh, the joy uh, and celebration of the baptisms this morning with prayer that happens at those gatherings on a midweek meeting like Wednesday night or in your growth groups or even in your private prayer times. The salvation of people that we now know and love dearly is directly connected in part to prayer. And so I just want to highlight the strategic importance of this. Salvations are not the only thing we pray for on these Wednesday night gatherings, but they are one of the priorities uh, that we make. So please do your best to be here. It lasts about an hour and uh, we'll have some things for your children uh, Lord willing, you could keep the Kaminsky's in prayer. Sickness has invaded their household again. Uh, but I know Daniel's planning some things for our children on Wednesday night. We hope that we'll see you and your family here for that very special time of prayer and praise. You follow along now as I read Luke 4. I'd like to read the first 15 verses. Luke 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great work you are doing in us, around us, even through us. Thank you uh, for these testimonies of faith that we have heard and witnessed this morning. How thankful we are that you continue to rescue and save, lifting us from the grave of our sins, 
from the enslavement to all kinds of desires and appetites, many of which are just so offensive we would not even want to speak of them in the presence of another. The accompanying guilt and shame, the fear that all of that sin creates is overwhelming. But you have rescued so many who are present here this morning, and it's our great joy to stand before you by faith, knowing that the sin has been removed, knowing that guilt is truly taken away, knowing that there's no longer a weight of shame or fear for us to bear. We give you all praise. We ask that there would be many more who, like Greg and Judy and Ellie, would come to know that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And even as we open this portion of Luke's gospel today, O Spirit of God, would you reveal to us the glory of Christ, His power not only to resist the temptation that was put before Him, but His great power to vanquish the greatest adversary of righteousness and salvation the world has ever known. How we praise you for this second Adam who walked the earth and by his blameless life reversed a curse that we could never reverse on our own. Oh, how we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have broken the curse both by your obedience in our place and by your death in our place. Now open our eyes that we may see you as you are, that we may know and believe the work of salvation as it is being revealed to us. Change us and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why would Jesus be tempted, especially on the heels of his baptism? What's going on here in this particular narrative that Luke puts before us? Some would say that Jesus is setting a bit of a moral example for us that we should follow. That maybe he's modeling a strategy for defeating the temptations and the offers of the devil. I submit to you there's far more than just a moral example being offered to us. Others would even go so far as to say, well, maybe Jesus is is promoting a, a bit of a method of spiritual warfare. So that if we follow these three simple steps that we see him demonstrate, steps of resistance, that we too could overcome sin and the temptations of the devil. Or if we learn the secrets of these three defeater verses, as some have described them, or perhaps apply ourselves in a special 40-day fasting and, and prayer marathon that we might be able to not only resist the temptations of the evil one, but stand in front of the mirror, as it were, and see a totally different person. But I can assure you that Jesus is not simply promoting a method No, something far greater than a moral example or a religious method is unfolding before us. For all of this takes place hidden from the view of the ordinary Jew or Gentile. What is taking place here unfolds far away from the royal city of of Israel or the capital of the Roman Empire. The Son of God in the full power and under the direction of the Spirit of God moves alone into the wilderness to engage humanity's greatest enemy. The Son of God is actually on the offensive. He is the one who is invading the devil's domain and space. And he's not doing it with weapons that we might anticipate or expect, but rather he unsheathes a different kind of power. 
It is the power of his holy appetites and obedience to God the Father. It is the weapon of holy service and worship that he offers exclusively to his God and Father. And it is finally the weapon of his holy faith and trust in action, even in the face of alternative offers. As Hebrews 2 verse 14 tells us, Jesus was in fact coming to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now let's look at the text and I want you to notice first of all that Jesus engages the devil with the power of the Holy Spirit or in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that both verse 1 and 14 included specific references to the Holy Spirit? Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and that he was led by the Spirit. And verse 14 says that he returned in the power of the Spirit. So like bookends supporting either side of the story and everything that comes between, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit and it's really important. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? It's actually a phrase that Luke uses not only in his gospel, but in the second book of the New Testament that he authored, the Acts of the Apostles. And hey, there's really good news. It's not only Jesus who is full of the Holy Spirit, but in time, Luke will record that disciples, ordinary people like us, not only can be full of the Spirit, but are. The expectation and even command of God is that we should be people who are full of the Holy Spirit. And so you begin to read some stories, particularly in, particularly in Acts, that the church was full of the Spirit, that men like Peter and Stephen and Paul and Barnabas and many others are full of the Spirit, but here it has reference to Jesus. It just means that in every way imaginable, there's a completeness, a permeation, if you will, of Christ's person with the Holy Spirit. Theologian Wayne Grudem said, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself, and it therefore will result in feeling what God feels, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. Now the tension we feel at this moment is that we say, but Jesus is God. Why would he need to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, because he's also man. And the ministry he is engaging in, that he is launching even in this particular chapter, is such that he must be full of the Spirit and he must be led by the Spirit. And that's the second thing that Luke tells us. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is exerting his personal and direct influence on Jesus and specifically leading him into the wilderness for this encounter with the devil. It's a reminder to us that it's not an accidental encounter. Jesus wasn't, in a sense, minding his own business when the devil decided to appear. No, he goes into the wilderness for the specific purpose of engaging the devil. One author writes, the conflict was not initiated by the devil, but by the spirit. Thus, Jesus was not portrayed as passively being dragged out by the evil one to endure temptation, for the initiator of this event was not the devil, but God. The picture is that of the anointed one of the Lord on the offensive and led by the spirit to confront the devil. 
Love that. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus did not enter the world as a passive recipient of a kingdom or on a, a, a mission of gospel purpose accidentally. He's the king. And as we sang earlier, one of the beautiful titles that it's pulled right out of the Old Testament is, in fact, he is Lord Sabaoth. As Andrew mentioned, Lord of heavenly armies. This is a warrior king. And he's come to wage war. But go back to verse 2 and notice the second part of that because Jesus does, in fact, engage the devil in a humanly weak condition. It's a reminder to us that the weapons of spiritual warfare are not measured by the strength of these bodies or minds. Rather, there's a spiritual necessity in waging a spiritual war. The end of verse 2 says that he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, just like any other human being. He needs food. He's supposed to eat. That's how that human body that, that was Christ's operated. And so he's gone without food for 40 days, hungry like you would expect him to be. But a little quick comparison. Remember last week we were looking at the genealogy that ends with Adam who was described as the son of God, and we began to lay some groundwork there, sang a line in a hymn earlier. This is the second Adam. And unlike the first Adam's temptation, which came in a place of of absolute abundance, which came at a moment when Adam had everything provided for him, the temptation for the second Adam comes when he is physically hungry as a result of 40 days of fasting and he's in a destitute wilderness without provision. A very different scenario. But now we come to the heart of the temptation and you'll notice that Jesus engages the devil on his own terms by the leading of the Spirit. We already touched on that. But here's the big thought. It is a temptation or a testing that will reveal his true nature. This is not about the devil. It's about Jesus. You say, how would you know that? Well, when we see that phrase that Luke includes here, to be tempted by the devil, the, the, the concept of temptation can take us one of two directions, and both are legitimate. You always need to stare at the context of God's words uh, as you read them or as you hear them preach and say, what's the larger movement of this particular passage? Well, temptation, as it occurs in many other places in Scripture, and I think there's an aspect of this here, would have to do with an enticement to sin. That would be the devil's perspective. He's going to offer some things and invite Jesus to consider some things that would actually lead him away from the will and blessing of God and create just a cosmic cataclysm. An enticement to sin is one way we can look at this, and that's legitimate. But there's a second aspect of this idea of temptation that has more to do with testing what is in the heart of a person, what's at the very core of their being. And so from the Holy Spirit's perspective, we might say that this season of temptation or testing will actually be a revealing of Jesus' character and his commitment to the mission that he, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, had laid down in eternity past. Now there's a good reason 
to believe, even on the basis of some of Luke's terminology here, that the devil was actually tempting Jesus throughout those 40 days. And these three particular temptations that are mentioned here are the culmination of this encounter. And before we get to them, though, I want to note one more thing. The one who instigates this, even though the spirit initiated the engagement, but the tempter is the devil. There are many names or even titles of this adversary that appear through Scripture, but the devil has reference specifically to one who falsely accuses. And by those false accusations, very often divides people, divides relationships, divides groups and organizations for no legitimate reason. If you think back to the first temptation recorded in Genesis 3, what was at the heart of the temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve? Well, he was falsely accusing God, first of all, undermining the authority of his word, asking that subtle question, did God really say? Did he give, it, give you a command like that? And then the second aspect of it was to accuse God as being less than honest. Oh, you will not surely die. God knows the day that you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. Your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil. Do you hear those accusations? Slandering the good word and the good purpose, or we might even say the good work of God himself. And there are similar slanders woven into these three temptations in front of us. You know, from the beginning of time, the devil was batting a thousand. Now, for you non-baseball fans, you're like, batting a thousand, what does that mean? Well, as a baseball fan, I'll share the analogy so you can join in and say, oh, that's an awesome illustration. It just meant that every time he got up to swing the bat of temptation, he got a hit. He got on base. All-star baseball players are, are the kind who can get a hit three out of every 10 times. If you batted 300 over your career, you're likely going to Cooperstown. Well, this adversary has batted 1,000 to this point. There's not one man or woman who had ever lived or who was alive on the face of the earth at that moment who, as he stepped up to the plate to tempt them, had been able to resist it fully. They might have had moments. They might have had days where they were able to say no, but over the course of their life, they fell again and again and again. So I think at this point, he's got a good track record and he's arrogant enough to think, well, maybe this guy will fall too. Oh, but he grossly underestimates this guy. Because this man is unlike any other who has walked the face of the earth. Let's look at the first temptation. Satan comes to him and says to him, if you are the Son of God, or you could even read that, since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's hungry. And even from the devil's perspective, he might be thinking, you know, God created you with this appetite for food. Your body needs it. And since you are the Son of God, just make some bread. God's the one who allowed you to suffer the deprivation and hunger of these 40 days. You have the power to change this. Certainly this would not be in rebellion against God. Just make some bread. It seems simple enough, doesn't it? We might even look at this and say, what could be the harm? The problem is it's not the will of the Father or the Spirit for Jesus at this moment. 
And for Jesus to give in to such a seemingly small thing would not only be disobedience, but it would also be a demonstration of a lack of faith in the personal care of God the Father and and a, a lack of faith in the commitment to the plan of God the Father to provide for him. And Jesus answers with Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Look at the text. What does Jesus say? It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Turn back to Deuteronomy with me, please. He's actually quoting the fifth book of the Old Testament in chapter 8. And I, I want to read the first two verses of that chapter. And that will serve as a little bit of a gateway to the specific thought that Jesus is sharing. So go back to Deuteronomy 8. I'll give you a page number here in just a moment. Page 152. And I want you to understand the passage that is in Christ's heart from which he is quoting at this moment. These words were first spoken to Israel as they came out of Egypt and slavery Multiple generations had been enslaved by the pharaohs. And the Lord speaks through Moses, saying to them, look at verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Do you see how life and blessing are woven into the commandment itself? It's not just an arbitrary standard or requirement that God places on people, but it's actually a pathway to life and blessing. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, there's our number 40, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Testing you. Let's find out. Israel, what's in your heart? And now verse three. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's the portion that Jesus is quoting. But it continues, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now I know that Luke doesn't quote that whole portion, but if you read Matthew's account, Matthew includes it, so apparently Jesus spoke a little more than what Luke took time, perhaps in his economical mind or just, well, we know that the Holy Spirit led Luke to to record those things, but the whole thought is man doesn't live by bread alone. Man actually lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, when you and I succumb to a temptation, it always reveals that within us, within us, There are desires and appetites for sin. That's what James talks about in his New Testament letter. You read chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He talks about the process of sin, but part of what makes the bait so attractive to us is that we actually have resident within us carnal desires. We call them lusts. Paul speaks of this in Romans 7 when he talks about the great battle within, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. This marks a significant difference between Jesus and us. Adam was first created with no sin nature. 
He actually had to choose to rebel against God and and step or even leap over his natural created disposition. The rest of us descended from Adam were born with a sin nature. You didn't become a sinner the first time you sinned. You sinned even the very first time because by nature you were in the grip of sin and there was stuff inside of you that was attracted to it. Jesus is born miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, yes, through the womb of Mary, but there's no sin nature in him. And one of the things that is astonishing is that there is nothing of the sort of desires I've just described within Jesus that he would actually feel some dark appetite rising from within saying, oh, I want that bread. Not in the way that you and I might experience it and though he is fully man subject to all the things that we are subject to he is a man of a completely different kind and you see it emerge as he quotes the word of God because he is not only full of the spirit of God but he is full of the wisdom of God understanding that the commands are given that he too might actually order his life and earthly ministry according to them and experience the fullness of God's blessing and even the multiplication of a new generation who will come behind him. So he's fully surrendered to God the Father and consequently refuses the temptation as it is offered. He's full of God the Spirit and so he resists the temptation as it is presented to him. Beloved, there has never been a man or woman who lived not by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God in the way God commanded it until this moment. And it's Jesus. And do you know he's doing this in part Not just so that he will be the blameless sacrifice when it is time to go to the cross. That is true. He's doing it to fulfill the requirements of the law that are necessary for you and me to enter God's presence one day. You not only need forgiveness of sins, you need positive righteousness in your account if you are to stand in the presence of the living God and know that he's not going to cast you away forever. This is the great and only perfect law keeper a second Adam walks the earth who by his blameless life breaks the curse temptation number two look at verse five the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The offer of authority intrigues us because we ask, did the devil really have the authority to give authority? And I think there is a yes aspect and a no aspect. The devil has Great authority. We sang the great hymn written by Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, saying of the craft and power of our adversary. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And, and that is true. It's true because passages like John's gospel, three times it's recorded that Jesus spoke of the devil as the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul refers to him as the God of this world. 
Paul referred to him in Ephesians 2 verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air. And when John received that apocalyptic, apocalyptic vision that he records in the book we call the Revelation of Jesus Christ, you come to chapter 13, verse 2, and you find uh, that the devil is revealed as a dragon possessing power and a throne and great authority. So clearly he has authority. But it's important for us to remember that the only authority the devil possesses is limited for a time and it ultimately is delegated by the sovereign God. He doesn't have inherent authority. And you know, sometimes people think of of Satan, the devil, as being kind of an equal to God. You know, like if the, the yin and yang in the universe, or you Star Wars fans, you know, there's the dark side of the force, and there's the good side, the light side. And as if God and the devil have been in this, you know, great combat, wrestling to see who will gain control. Oh, the, the devil is, first of all, a created being, and God is uncreated. The devil derives even his wicked existence because God has granted him life and existence and God is the self-existent one. Some of you grew up in a context where you heard that Satan might, was supposedly even the spirit brother of Jesus and the rest of us. It's just not true. For Jesus himself was not created, but he is the eternal son of God. So Satan's a created being who rebelled consequently fell, has been given some authority for a brief period in the history of the universe, powerful, yes, but nothing. I mean, not even close to being in the class that God himself, and in particular the Son, exists. So in one respect, could he give Jesus some authority? I suppose so. But when you consider the authority that Jesus already possessed and even the authority and honor and glory that would come to him post-death on the cross and resurrection, it's a pitiful offer. And that brings us to the second part. It's also an offer of the glory of the kingdoms of this world. And you might say, well, what glory do the kingdoms of the world possess? I mean, there was some to speak of. Rome had a certain kind of glory at that particular moment. Some of the other great capital cities of the nations through history have had great glory, great assets, great wealth, great education, great systems of of government. But again, in comparison to the glory, and remember, glory is a word that just speaks of the weight of something or someone. But to, to just say or think in terms of comparison to the glory that was already Christ's and in comparison to the glories of the heavenly realm and in comparison to the glories of the future kingdom that would come that had already been promised to the Son if he would walk this path of obedience and sacrifice and crucifixion and resurrection, what tiny little offer Satan makes to him. Now what is happening here? Let me cast it in a little different uh, vein of thought for you. Uh, January is a big month for, you know, renewing your gym membership or, you know, like, okay, New Year's resolutions, we're going to get healthy, we're going to eat differently, we're going to invest in the exercise equipment or whatever it is. And, you know, it's also the season where all kinds of exercise devices are being advertised. And some of them are quite remarkable. 
but they're nothing but gimmicks and shortcuts, aren't they? Sorry if you're one of those who invested some hard-earned cash in a device like this, but you know, you, know, you will never develop that sleek six-pack abdomen that you used to have once upon a time, or maybe never had, but now believe you can have, just by strapping a device around your midsection that shocks your muscles into involuntary contractions over a period of time. It's just not happening. And especially because you haven't changed the habit of being on the couch and eating potato chips and drinking sugary drinks, you know, that thing could shock you 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next year. And those abs underneath that you hope will emerge, they're still nestled down snugly underneath a layer or two or 10 of adipose tissue. It's just not happening. It's a gimmick. And I'll guarantee you, you know, those models that they put up there who like make you think, well, that's what my abs would look like. They didn't get those abs by wearing that device. They got them in a little different way. And what the devil offers Jesus, in a sense, is a cheap substitute, a bypass, a kind of shortcut that runs beyond the eternal plan of his necessary suffering and death on the cross and the promise of eternal glory. Verse 8 says, Jesus answers him plainly, flatly, it is written, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus sees the cheap and counterfeit offer for what it is. His heart is fully fixed. This temptation, uh, it strikes me as I think back to the little brief story that Luke included from Jesus' boyhood when he was in the temple and his parents left him, lost him, came back, found him, and he said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That's always been the priority. And so the invitation to shift the focus of his personal worship and service in this lifetime to the devil himself, I mean, it's all, almost laughable. I don't want to act as if this temptation had no force in it whatsoever, but what I do want you to be impressed with is that the heart of Christ is fully fixed on the eternal priority of worshiping the only true God and serving him with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the commandment that, that emerged from the beginning. And beloved, just again, whereas you and I and every other human being has swerved from this divine orientation to worship God alone and serve him with all that they are, and how often think about how often we swerve not only from the command itself but we worship other objects or we worship our own power or we worship our own experiences and desires but for Jesus the temptation actually reveals that he is everything God ever intended us to be but weren't and at the same time he's everything we need him to be a second Adam walks the earth and by his blameless eye life he breaks the curse look at temptation three go to verse nine the devil now takes him to jerusalem and sets him up on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him if you are the son of god throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and now comes jesus again simple direct powerful answer 
It is said, and now he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a difference between trusting God and testing God. If you want to turn back to Exodus 17, you can actually see the story that Deuteronomy 6 is making reference to. And you'll see the difference established between trusting God and testing God. The children of Israel tested God in their wilderness journey as they camped at Rephidim and uh, Massa. And as Exodus 17 tells us, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You could also understand that. Why do you dispute with the Lord? We're here by his design. He has not failed us yet. You've seen the miraculous signs, the the wonders that he performed to deliver you from Egypt. Why do you think that this moment of thirst, real as it is, maybe even intense as it is, why have you wrongly concluded, as you're about to say, that he's brought us into the wilderness to kill us? They're disputing with the Lord. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You know, beloved, it's one thing to be pressed beyond your human lim- limits where it actually humbles you, puts you on your knees or in your face before God and, and you say, I don't understand this, God. We're hurting, we're struggling. My strength is failing me. It's another thing to accuse God of an evil hidden motive, which is what Israel is doing. They're testing him. Their requests and their demands are not the expressions of hearts fully submitted to God and actively trusting God. Rather, they are presumptuously accusing God and making demands of God as if their wills and their wishes and their perspective are sovereign. And that's at the heart of the temptation that the devil puts before Jesus, even quotes the Bible to him. Quotes two verses out of a psalm. Hey, here it is. You've been quoting the Bible to me. Let me quote the Bible to you. Listen, just because somebody stands up and says the Bible says, or even because you happen to read a particular passage and totally misunderstand it, doesn't mean that it always means what somebody says it means. But here is Jesus fully surrendered to the goodwill and leadership of God the Father and under the leadership and direction of God the Spirit, living out his faith. Not even Jesus presumes upon God. And here he is. Genuinely, humbly, personally, trusting that he's in the wilderness, engaged in this battle by God's perfect will and design. Even the hunger of the 40 days is part of God's good plan. And yes, the hunger is real, probably his own thirst is real, but the temptation itself that Satan sets before him will not succeed because this is the man who is living his life the way God intended for all of us to live. Jesus, again, is everything we should be and everything that we need him to be. The second Adam who walks the earth. And through his blameless life, 
breaks the curse. You know, while there's no blood on the ground of this cosmic battlefield, the victor is clear. Look at verse 13. He, the devil, departed from him until an opportune time. He retreats, not the Christ. Oh, the devil will return to tempt Jesus again, but he will never engage this conquering king on his own terms. The destruction has begun. I can't help but imagine, hopefully this is sanctified imagination, that at that moment, a little bit of a tremor rattled the gates of Hades. That a ripple of fear moved through the ranks of darkness that may have witnessed from afar. The death and hell have now been put on notice. The victor king is here. And he has shot, he has fired the first shot of a holy war that will climax with the head of this snake, the devil, under his redemptive heel. Luke says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. That is, he is, he is fully under the control of the Holy Spirit, the enabling power. And it's not physical bread that empowers Jesus for ministry. It's not his own ambition or plans for a substitute glory to bypass God's purposes to achieve a different kind of authority that motivates Jesus. It's not presumptuous demands of God that move him even into the season of ministry. Rather, it is the complete filling of the Spirit. It is the direct leading and guidance of the Spirit. And it is the full power of the Spirit Spirit of God that will cause Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, the second Adam to triumph in every way. Oh, what a glorious moment. It makes me say, let's keep reading. And it makes me want to say, can I keep preaching? But we'll wait for next week. Last little thought. You have to see this. Turn over to the book of Hebrews because this is where it moves even out of kind of this, this, um, ethereal I mean it's it's a glorious thought isn't it to think of Jesus just coming in and and you know kicking the devil in the head for the first time but go to Hebrews 2 we read a portion of this passage earlier in the service but first find verse 14 we didn't read this I quoted it at the outset of the service Hebrews 2 14 declares that Jesus has come to destroy the one who has the power of death. And, and, and Hebrews says specifically he does that by his death on the cross, right? He has come to, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But now look down to verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And here's the service of God that, that he designed for him and purposed for him. First of all, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That just means he becomes the sin bearer. Josh mentioned this as he read that portion right before the offering. So Jesus takes our sin on himself. God pours out his wrath fully on Jesus. It's all spent. There's nothing left. You and I don't get wrath. We don't get death. We don't get condemnation and judgment. And God is satisfied with what Jesus did. That's all wrapped up in this concept of propitiation. But look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered 
when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I know some of you may have been a little sidetracked earlier when I said, you know, the difference between Jesus and you and me is that he didn't have anything within him, like James 1 describes, you know, of a sinful lust or a carnal desire. So you, you might say, well, how, how then could we say he was really genuinely tempted like as we are? Do you know, here, here's a big difference. Because of what resides in you and me, you and I have swerved off the rails of obedience long before the full force of any particular temptation could come our direction. There was not one moment where Jesus went off the rails of obedience. So imagine what kind of pressure continued to build upon him through those hours and seasons of temptation. And what he shares with you, look at verse 18 again, is the suffering that comes in temptation. It hurts, it's hard, it's painful, it's frustrating, it can be terrifying. And that is a place of commonality that I would not want any of you to take for granted and I, I want to press deeper into this. So Christ being made human and experiencing our, our weakness and enduring the full force of the de- devil's temptation though has resulted in something really wonderful. Go back to verse 17. He's become a merciful and faithful high priest. You know, for many of us to experience a similar similar kind of success or triumph, especially, you know, like the greater the stakes as this holy uh, battle with the devil was, you know, the greater the sense of triumph, but for many of us that would leave us unsympathetic with those who are not able to achieve success. And many of us would not tend to mercy for those who fall short. We often wonder, well, why can't they do it? Do they not have the willpower? Do they not have the commitment? Do they not have the discipline? But Christ's every experience of the strain of real temptation that the writer of Hebrews refers to as suffering has now so shaped the heart of our high priest that his disposition toward us, not just in the moments of temptation, but even when we succumb and have failed, the disposition of his heart is mercy. That he would say, oh, my brother, my sister, I do know what that pressure and the suffering that comes in those hours and seasons of temptation And if you're in Hebrews 2, you could turn to Hebrews 4 very quickly. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's not only merciful, but he's sympathetic. Did you ever have a teacher who was so gifted, so brilliant, who could just not seem to relate to ordinary students? And it's really hard to be in a class like that, isn't it? And maybe it was a math teacher who was openly exasperated with your inability to grasp something as simple as the Pythagorean theorem. How can this not be clear to you? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And you're staring at the triangle going, I know all those angles add up to 180 degrees, but beyond that, I don't get it. And you feel like an imbecile. And you dread going into that class. Or the literature teacher who couldn't understand why you, and I'm going to vent a little bit again, why you as a high school boy would not want to read all the Charlotte Bronte novels. (laughs) 
I still feel guilty that I didn't actually read every word on every page. They're unable to sympathize with ordinary people, but not so are Jesus. So in one on the one hand, he is in a category all by himself. On, another can, uh, on the other hand, he is one of us. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, because he is what he is, and because he's full of mercy and full of sympathy for you in your deepest moments of temptation, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when you cry out from that deep moment of temptation where you're teetering on the edge and you say, God, it's so hard. Jesus, will you rescue me? He says, I know I know I'm here to help. Turn away. Immerse your heart in my word. Follow my simple commands. They will lead you to a place of blessing and benefit. But even when you blow it, there's more mercy in me than there is sin in you. There's more willingness to forgive than there is even desire for within you to be forgiven. There's more power in me to rescue you from this damnable sin that you feel like will overthrow you. It's all in me. Come to me. I know, I know I'm your king. He's not only beginning the destruction of the devil in this passage, but he is paving this pathway of salvation, of mercy-giving, sympathizing salvation. And it goes straight to the throne of grace. Aren't you glad that a second Adam walked the earth and by his blameless life not only broke the curse but suffered just as you and I suffer that he might save us to the uttermost. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are everything that we should be but are not but how we praise the God of heaven that you are everything that we need to be. You are worthy. You are obedient. You are perfect. And we place our faith in you on this day. We rejoice that you offer a way of escape, not just from the immediate temptation, but from condemnation and judgment and wrath. So I ask, great God and King, that you would do a sweet work in our hearts. Rescue those who feel conflicted at this moment. And save those, even some who do not actively look for you. But open their eyes that they may see you in all of your glory. You are God. You are Savior. You are the sacrifice, the high priest. You're the victor. Today we crown you by faith. A day comes when we will crown you face to face. Do all your holy will. We pray that we would have the joy even in the coming weeks and months of seeing many more baptized on a Sunday morning. We pray that you would sweep through this valley that friends and family who sit in darkness at this very moment would see the great light, which is Jesus. 
that you would claim their precious souls and claim the ground that seems to be under the authority of the devil. So break the rule of sin, break the rule of our adversary. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.